Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Hi, I'm John Harriet at Ignatius Press. I'm here with one of our authors, the novelist Brendan Hodge. He's the author of this novel here, if you can get it. And we're going to be talking to him about writing, about uh, being a Catholic novelist, and uh, just assorted other topics. Many of you may have already noticed on our social media platforms, we've been talking about a month of novels, which we the promotion we're doing right now. Ignatius Press publishes a number of novels, and right now they are 25% off on our website, all of them. Uh, the ebook versions have an even bigger discount, so you should go check that out. Um, anyway, well, welcome, Brendan. Thank you. It's great to be here. So uh, we're both in Ohio, actually, uh, oddly enough. I ended up moving out here uh, at the beginning of this year. And it's, I thought it was kind of funny because it's a similar trajectory to what happens with the protagonist of If You Can Get It, the young woman who moves from the Bay Area to uh, Illinois, I believe. Uh, and uh, she ends up kind of having a, a radical readjustment of her career, which is something that I think res will resonate for most people in the past year. A lot of people had... Uh, kind of a real readjustment in the way that they've approached their own jobs and, you know, life in general. Um, anyway, if people have any questions for us, they can post them in the comments and stuff, but I'm going to start in just asking some questions of Brendan here. Uh, so with this novel, which is kind of your, your debut, uh, what was the general inspiration behind that? Um, I, I wanted to write a novel uh, that dealt with uh, the business world in a way that I felt like was uh, more true to life than a lot of the novels that I've read. I, I've worked in a corporate environment for 20 years, and uh, often you have uh, kind of um, a um, sort of business as villain kind of dynamic going on, where else you just have sort of wildly unrealistic, um, either sort of very New York focused stories or uh, neighborhood cupcake shop kind of stories. Um, and, and I think that it's an environment in which there's a lot of inherent humor. And uh, so I wanted to write a, a novel set kind of in the world in which I, I spend my days. Yeah, so one of the things that I've noticed is you put a lot of your life skills to work in this novel. Uh, there's a lot of it involves talking about things like pricing. And, and I know that's what you do as a, as a job. Um, it's uh, also one of the things when we when this novel was first submitted to us at Ignatius Press, I had sent it around to other people to, to read. And Father Fessio, the founder of Ignatius, he at lunch came over to me and he said, "I, you know, th this book is really good. I really like the dynamic between the sisters, but the business stuff is really interesting." <laughs> it was uh, he really glommed onto that. But it, but at the core of it is the relationship between these these two. Uh, sisters and uh, everybody I've recommended this book to who's read it has really commented on um, how realistic the dynamic is between them. And I'm wondering if that's drawing also from relationships that you have observed within your own family or other people that you know. Um, 
not not directly from my family. Uh, I, I'm the oldest of, of three, and we're all pretty close in age uh, and very different personalities. Uh, certainly, the, the Jen and Katie in, in the novel are very different personalities, though uh, not not directly mapping to any of my siblings. But the the dynamic that I thought would be interesting there is. Um, that uh, they're very far apart in age. So Jen is 10 years older than Katie. And one of the things that has struck me, I guess, more broadly in family is the sense in which as you reconnect with people or just as you grow in parallel to people over time, especially these days where often we have moves across the country and you sort of reconnect after a period, that uh, you have to get to know people repeatedly during the course of your life. And uh, so the dynamic interests me that with two sisters with 10 years apart, they've never actually interacted at all as equals until the, the point at the beginning of the novel where suddenly they're thrown together again. Uh, the younger sister has graduated from college and she kind of impulsively after a fight with their parents moves out to move in with her, her older sister who's in her mid thirties. Um, and when, when you've been siblings and you have, you know, a 13 year old and a three year old or an 18 year old and an eight year old, you don't really think of each other as people in a fully rounded sense at all. So these, these two characters are having to get to know each other for the first time where there, there may be a different stages in life, but they are both adults. And so they're having to deal with things that they've never dealt with before. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, the other thing that this uh, the book has gotten comparisons to a little bit is the way that Aust Jane Austen draws her sibling characters. Um, so that's a, yeah, some, I think it's in the description is that two sisters is different as Eleanor and Mariana of sense and sensibility. So, um, yeah, that's an interesting observation having to get to know people over again because I've I've had I'm the second oldest of, of eight and I've had multiple siblings come out to crash with me at various points in my, in my life uh, where you know it'll be somebody that I haven't really had a close close living with interaction for quite some time and yeah you do end up having to kind of re relearn what, who is this person and, and how do you how do you uh, talk to them in a way that treats them as a peer and not just as a little kid? So yeah, and I, I am a big Jane Austen fan, and uh, what, I think people often think of her novels as being primarily romances. But to me, I, I think that while there's usually a romantic plotline going on, what's really interesting is that Austen finds a lot of drama in these small interactions within the kind of world she portrayed. I mean, it's a world which deals with inheritance and estates and marriages and dynamics between family. Um, and the way that you make a living and the way that you, you put together a family is, is different these days in some at least sort of surface ways. But I think that the, the inherent drama that she draws on of, of just personal dynamics and these kind of very small, very uh, everyday conflicts is, is I think, very universal. And, and it's, um, I hope, one of the things that I, I touched on well. Yeah, I, th I think it, it works very well. One of the um, things I do here at Ignatius Press, I'm a, uh, I do our catalogs, but I also design a lot of our book covers. So this is one of the covers that I actually did do a design for. It was a lot of fun to try to bring out the different personalities of the of the two characters in the, you know, in the cover, as well as kind of indicate a little bit of what the plot was about. Um, 
and try to keep with the sort of, I mean, this is, I would say this book has a somewhat breezy tone, even though the, the plot line is, is pretty serious. So that's a, one of the other things I tried to reflect a bit on the, on the cover. Um, but again, for people, um, if you follow us on social media, we, we've been talking about having a month of novels. And so all of our novels are 25% off till the end of this month, uh, June. And then there's uh, even steeper discounts on our, um, on our eBooks. Um, one of the other things I was going to talk about, you, you, you write fiction, but you also write nonfiction. And speaking of using your, um, you know, your life skills and things that you've experienced in your own life in this book, you've recently started writing for Pillar Catholic, uh, and you've done some really fascinating analytic sort of breakdowns of, uh, different aspects of church finance and especially during the, the pandemic. And although I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent about it, I just want to ask you like briefly, like, uh, you know, what, what, what exactly would you, um, how would you kind of describe these pieces that you've been working on over there? Yeah, so the goal with the pillar was uh, to try to, to do some data journalism that was focused on the church. And uh, I think data journalism has been kind of one of the fascinating new um, kind of subgenres that's cropped up. Uh, I mean, 538 is famous for doing it on politics and a bit on culture and so on. But part of the idea is that in our, in our modern society, there are, uh, there are a lot of issues that you can start to approach from kind of a data-driven point of view. Um, and it, it can get you out of a mode of reporting where often what you'll do is you'll form an opinion and uh, you'll interview three sources that back up your opinion. And, and it, it kind of gives you a very easy way to frame a story that, that gives the appearance of giving a comprehensive uh, a comprehensive view of something, but, but can often be fairly slanted. So, um, you know, hey, let's talk about people who are moving from California to other parts of the country. Here, we're going to interview three people, and then we'll quote some overall number. And that, that makes you feel like you now have a complete understanding of, of the picture. Um, and you might, because one, I mean, if you've done a good job of finding representative people, it might be very clear. But uh, but often one of the things that I think has been interesting as people have started to do data journalism is sometimes when you take a look at, uh, at a, a large set of data that addresses some issue, you'll find that it's not as, um, the, the, the trends that you find when you get into the detail are not necessarily the ones that were kind of uh, conventional wisdom. Um, so obviously in the church, a, a lot of things are not addressable through data. I mean, when we when we talk about faith and morals, those are not sort of ones and zeros. Uh, but in, in the human institution of the church, there are there are elements that you can address that way. And so, like one of the things that we did is we wanted to look at the impact of the pandemic on uh, uh, giving of parishioners to their parishes. And a lot of parishes published their weekly collections, their bulletins. We went out and collected. 10,000 bulletins from over the course of two years and looked at at a bunch of different parishes, how did their weekly collections change during the pandemic and, and what kind of conclusions could we draw from different parts of the country and different different uh, sizes uh, and types of parish. Hmm. So if people would like to uh, read more from, uh, from you at the pillar, where would they find your, your writing there? So, uh, 
we are at uh, pillarcatholic.com, and uh, it's a uh, it, it's one of these uh, news sites which is driven by Substack. So when you go to the the main page, it'll ask you to subscribe. You can click through. We'll provide a list of all the recent articles. Uh, the most recent one uh, that I have that's already published is uh, taking a look at the, uh, the McCarrick effect. Uh, so it's taking a look at whether uh, people have, uh, through their um, you know, the scandals in the church and, and kind of their, their feelings about uh, high-profile bishops, have they changed how they contribute to diocesan campaigns? Okay. It sounds well, I've, everything I've I've seen from the pillar has always been very informative, and uh, it's, I'm glad that it's a new resource that's out there. So, congratulations on on your work there. It's, a, it's a, definitely something that's that's well worth checking into. So, people, it was pillarcatholic.com. So, um, go back, get back to talking about fiction writing here. Um, we were talking about how you some of your uh, life skills and business skills uh, informed the, the way that you wrote this book. Um, I'm wondering a little bit about writing uh, process. It's one of those things that, you know, I, I have a number of children myself. So whenever I'm doing kind of side projects or something like that, it's always a struggle to figure out when, how do you fit that in to your day when you've got kids and all this other stuff. So what, what is, what would a typical writing day look like for you? Um, typical, we have uh, seven children ourselves, so uh, typical is sort of a, uh, a tenuous term maybe in our family. Um, but um, I, I, um, I have found that, that for me, writing tends to come uh, very much in fits and starts. It, it's hard for me to set aside uh, one to two hours every single day or five days a week and, and make sure that I'm getting uh, getting solid progress on a big project like this. So uh, the way the way that I addressed, uh, if you can get it, and, and, and the way that I've done big fiction writing projects since is I, uh, I picked a couple months stretch and kind of came to a agreement with my wife that we were going to set aside writing time. And so I actually sat down every single night uh, at, at between nine or 10 o'clock at night and would just write for uh, anywhere from two to, to five hours. Uh, and so I, she would kind of we'd get the youngest kids down and then I would lock myself in the library and start writing. And I kept that up for uh, a couple months, which got me to kind of a, a rough draft of the entire book and then uh, revising it and, and polishing it and getting it ready to for submission was a much longer uh, project. But getting that initial writing done was kind of a, a fever pitch period of writing almost every single night. Wow. Yeah. And um, one of the other things we were talking about a little bit earlier before we went on live here was uh, the role that research plays in, in fiction. Because when you're writing fiction, you're not only informed by, for example, other fiction, you might be informed by nonfiction. So what kind of research uh, went into this, uh, this book? Because I'm assuming it's not all per from your own personal uh, business experience. Yeah, it was um, it, it was a bit of a mix in that uh, there were certainly a lot of business episodes that were drawn from personal experience. But uh, but I, although I've worked with a lot of teams that have done product development uh, in 
manufactured in China and then on sort of the U.S. side of the conference call with the, the Chinese team uh, day in and day out when we're getting ready for launch. I had not actually gone to China like uh, my main character, uh, Jen, does for a while. And so uh, I, I read a number of books about manufacturing in China and being a business traveler in China to try to get the right sort of details to make that work. Um, and then also, I, I really, um, I, to me, it, um, no understanding the religious background of your characters is, is kind of as essential as knowing what, what sort of job they do or where they live. And so I, I, I felt like I needed to understand the religious context of my characters, but I also didn't want to write about characters who are kind of deep in the, the Catholic Orthodox subculture, if you will, uh, which, which is a world in which I've spent a lot of my life, but I feel like, um, uh, I, I guess I often feel like an outsider in, in sort of in the office and uh, everyday business circles in that I have sort of this this quirky world that I go off and uh, live in with, with my family and with other Catholic, very active Catholics. And then um, there is uh, the business world in which people do think about and talk about these kind of issues, but they're not living in this kind of over, sometimes overheated um, sort of uh, smaller world of, of intense Catholicism. And so I wanted to write about characters who dealt with these, these religious issues and had to think about the place of that in their lives, but were not part of that subculture. Uh, so I, I even read some kind of sociology stuff on um, on kind of relationships and changing relationship expectations and so on to help me sort of fill in gaps between sort of how I dealt with people from the outside as an observer in the office and trying to, uh, I guess, root that in sort of you can you can have your outsider view, but try to, to test that against uh, some books that did a lot of profiling of um, maybe a, a more standard lifestyle. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that was that's that is one of the things that is interesting about this book is it, it's a it's not about a um, a people who are who are part of the the same Catholic milieu that that a lot of our, our readers may be from. Uh, instead, they're basically their parents were, were kind of cultural Catholics, and and the and the parents have that sort of reversion to being more. Uh, pious and the children are just sort of puzzled by it uh, from, from the um, siblings in this in the book from what I remember of the plot and uh, but there is a, one character in it who is a very serious kind of Catholic who you might encounter in, in the general you know Catholic subculture that uh, you and I are from who's a, um, a character that they meet once they move out to Illinois yeah, so, um, and that was honestly a really fun element to, uh, to write, because as you described, one of the conflicts that I wanted to look at is I've, I've known people uh, who have, have had a reversion to Catholicism later in life, um, and, and there, it seems like kind of there are tensions that come up at that point, uh, both uh, between people who've been living a, a more... Um, kind of intentionally Catholic uh, lifestyle for a long time and that versus people who come in later after their childbearing years and so on and then also within families as you see. I know I I come um, from a on the sort of in my extended family uh, my uh, 
my, my mom my and mom her siblings, you know, like a lot of large uh, ethnically Catholic families. Uh, in, in the course of the 70s and 80s, a lot of people fell away and some people came back to the church and some became Protestant and so on. And there are a lot of stresses that creates within family and I think a lot of conflict and, and drama in, in a novel like in any other art form comes from conflict. So I, I wanted to, to work with that. And so you kind of have this slightly fraught relationship between the sisters and their parents. And then uh, they at one point go to go to church with their parents uh, and uh, pick up a bulletin and they're looking for a, a handyman to help up with help out with some work around the house. And they call this guy whose name is, is advertised in the bulletin, Paul, who's this handyman. And he's a uh, a former seminarian who's trying to get sort of a organic farm off the ground and is doing handyman work. Uh, and so that was kind of my my chance to write sort of an outsider view of the, the inside world of uh, intense Catholicism, because uh, he's reading Wendell Berry books about sort of sustainable living in the world and playing Johnny Cash songs and drinking Guinness and talking to them earnestly about distributism and stuff like this, which to them is, is complete mystery talk. Yeah, that's a, the, the thing that I liked about it is that most people who are not, uh, you know, maybe kept, grew up Catholic, but are sort of falling away and stuff, their idea of, of, a, um, of somebody who might be more uh, actively religiously Catholic is usually some sort of very straight-laced uh, kind of upper crust type of person. And uh, that doesn't, most of the people that I know that are really deeply into the Catholic subculture look a little bit more like Paul. And, you know, they may be into these weird, funky food movements and, and all these other things. And it's all part of this, you know, attempt to get closer to, uh, to nature as well as to faith. And so um, I, I think it's some, something that a lot of people who may not be from that background might be very puzzled when they encounter it like the sisters are in this. But, yeah. you know, I think I'm oddly attracted to it. What, and I think it's also, um, from a modern point of view, it is it has come to seem strange to be kind of overly committed or overly involved in, in your faith and changes in your everyday life due to your faith. And yet, we also live in a time when people are willing to go to all sorts of lengths to follow an exercise regimen or a diet or to center themselves through some sort of, uh, sort of secularized meditation and so on. So I, I think that one of the things that can make that practice of religion seem more uh, understandable from a, a semi-outside point of view is, is the, the fact that among people who are serious about religion, you have also, they've also often done a lot of thinking about what it means to to live seriously or live intentionally in other ways as well. And so that they have also addressed other parts of their lives and what does it mean to do real work or what does it mean to live in connection with nature? What does it mean to live sustainably? And I think in some ways, those kind of questions are ones which are more addressable to a lot of more secular modern people than a question of, you know, what does the phrase Eucharistic coherence even mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's one, one of the um, things that I, I think is, uh, I noticed when I've, uh, I, I'm, I do a lot of things with uh, people involved in the arts and a lot of uh, artists who I know who 
may may have a really zero connection to faith or anything like that. They understand religious principles as applied to art, and it's it's almost like instinctive. Where like, oh, okay, I understand why you need to do a composition like this because that's the way it, it portrays this particular religious figure or religious themes in art. So it's um, it's an interesting thing where I've you know talked to people where they just think I'm bonkers for being religious, but then they'll look at a you know painting of the Madonna and Child and be like, oh yeah, that makes sense why you would do it like that. <laughs> it's, it's sort of like they can understand it in one context and the other. It's it, yeah, it flies over the head. Um, but yeah. Um, so again, for if people to remind them, we were talking about if you can get it, it's a novel by Brendan Hodge. All of our novels till the end of the month right now are on sale for 25% off. And um, our ebooks, we've got an even steeper discount here. So we're almost to the end of our uh, half hour here. And uh, I wanted to ask you a final question, which is, um, I'm not going to ask what you're working on or any of that sort of stuff, but uh, I, I know that you can find uh, your, your writing uh, other places online. We already talked about Pillar, Cat, uh, Pillar um, but where can we find your personal uh, writing online? So uh, my wife and I also have a uh, blog that we've been keeping going for, um, gosh, 16 years now. <laughs> sort of strange to say. Uh, and that is at Darwin Catholic. Uh, that is darwincatholic.blogspot.com. Um, and uh, the, the name uh, sprang from back when I, I very first started writing it uh, in 2005. I, uh, I was interested in kind of the, the question of, of demographics. And I mean, we're in a world where um, even when you're married, having children has become optional for artificial contraception. And so many people talk about how um, they don't want to have children or people shouldn't have too many children. And then you have other, you know, these huge religious families in some cases, uh, which, uh, and, and so I, I was interested in kind of this intersection of religion and demographics. And, and uh, honestly, I named the blog that. I maybe wrote about that for, you know, some of what I covered for six months or a year. Um, and then we just moved on to writing about whatever interested us. So uh, you get sort of a, a strange uh, combination of religious topics and history and literature and politics, kind of whatever comes up. Yeah, so I've, I've always, you know, I've followed it since before I, I knew you personally. So it was, uh, you know, for the last... You know, at least at least a decade, I've, I've read your blog on and off, and, and you and Kat are always been very interesting to writers to read. Um, uh, so yeah, that's not, I would say people, if you haven't checked out the blog, you should you should definitely go give it a visit. Um, maybe even look through some some of the archives and some some of your fiction writing. Both you and uh, for Kat has uh, kind of. You, some of it has been sampled there, I know, from time to time. Yeah, yeah, we have we have put up at times uh, parts of uh, fiction that we're working on. Um, and I, I think, I mean, when you talk about writing process, you kind of get formed by different uh, habits and incentives. And uh, having written a blog for so long, uh, knowing that there are people out there uh, reading and interested in a project becomes very, very motivating. Uh, so one of the things that 
we've done is sometimes kind of blog through a rough draft on something that we're working on. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us here uh, for this uh, live stream here. And uh, one last reminder, everybody, um, this is the novel we've been talking about with author Brendan Hodge, if you can get it. And it's available right now, along with all of our other novels, for 25% off till the end of June. Um, and I hope you can all join us for the next one of these um, live conversations here on Facebook. Thanks. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.